Why don't you please take a seat? Oh, yes. Success. The iPad's working almost. Yeah, good. Good. You need, you need to pray for it. It's pretty old. Yes, um, pretty soon... After this service, I'll be headed down to Collingwood Park to preach there also. Spare a thought for me at about 11.30 with no air conditioning. Okay? Spare a thought also for the mothers in the congregation whose kids aren't in kids' ministry today. Because at Collingwood Park, we're in a, a school auditorium. It's a big area, and we only use like the front half of it. And so when the kids get mobile... There's a, lot of, there's a lot of space to cover, okay? And the mums have got to be pretty fit to keep up with them. So spare a thought for them. But there are certain advantages to being in a, in a, in a shared venue situation. We've been praying. We've been praying for an outpouring down there. And, you know, I tell you what, New Year's Day, we thought it happened. Because in, in the week between Christmas and New Year, the unthinkable happened. Somebody stole our offering buckets from the hall. And so at two minutes to 10, I'm racing around like a chook with my head cut off down there, looking for a receptacle that we can put money into, that we can pass around. And in the side room of the stage, I found some sort of theatrical props, and I found these two hats, but they were covered in glitter. And, and so we used them. We just used them. As people were walking out that day, I started to get excited. They were all glowing, and they had little shiny bits all over there. And I said, I said to one of the guys, I said, what's that? And he said, it was the tinsel on the, on the hats that we used. I thought the glory cloud had descended or something. <laughs> but nonetheless, are you ready for a big 2017? Yeah. I was thinking about that before. I saw Robert Colton walking around and I, I, you know, I thought, gee, Robert, you ready for another year of following Geelong? Another year of disappointment, <laughs> tragedy? crestfallenness, another year of losing to Hawthorne. How do you do it, mate? No, you're a good, good, good guy, Rob. My, own, my son supports Geelong too, so I've sort of I'm invested a little bit in the club. But today, I want to talk to you about something that should be obvious to us. It seems like a bit of an Old Testament concept, but it, it, it really sits in the New Testament so well. And when I start to get into it, you look around and you'll see the evidence of it in this very auditorium. I want to speak to you today about inheritance. Last week, as we were going into worship at Collingwood Park, I was, I was talking to the congregation there and I said, I said, some of you are here today because you saw space, you saw things that you could do, you saw ways that you could serve God. I said, others of you are here because you've had a bad experience and you're just seeking refuge. You, you, you want to be hidden for a while. And, and God will work that through and then you'll be back on your feet and, and serving him. And I said, still others of you are here because there is something that you will gain, that will, will go into you, that you'll absorb from the environment and you'll take it with you. It'll be captured in the genes and passed on to the next generation of your family. And that is an inheritance something that you pull out of the environment around you, something that you pull out of the people around you, something that is yours, but you're not walking in yet. And that's an inheritance. And I just felt, I felt the atmosphere change when I said that. Really did. And this week, all through this week, 
it's almost like God has been making that come more and more alive to me. It's almost as if he's breathing on that idea. And so I'm provoked to speak in that direction this morning. If I had my time over again, I would have changed what I said last week. I would have said, you're all here because of the inheritance that God has for you. You're not here for different reasons. All of you, you might be here for different reasons, but you all have an inheritance to be gained from being in this place. It's not that our church is special. It's pretty special, I've got to say. But in every church, you can draw something from. But in our church, you look around you and you can sometimes see three, maybe four generations sitting in the seats. There's, there's something that's ongoing, something that is passed on from generation to generation. And I want to deal with that this morning. See, in this house, if you've been here for 10 years or 10 minutes, you can catch something. You can catch, it's like you breathe something in. It's in the atmosphere, it's in the environment. Quietness is also in the environment. We'll have to deal with that. I'm, not, I'm happy if you agree with me, okay? See, an inheritance will mean different things to different people. But if you go after it, it can mean awesome things sown into your family for generations. That's why it's called an inheritance. You know, I came here, there was just me and Nerida, my wife, and Brett, who was two at the time. We came here in 1991, a family of three. Number two son was in the womb at the time, but there was just the three of us. And at that time, I'd been in another church. I was, I'd been the, the youth pastor. I'd been a board member. I'd been a life group leader. I'd been a musician. And I just, for the time, I'd had a gutful. You can laugh at that. I don't mean it. I really was. And I thought, I just want to sit. Just want to, just want to take my time, get into it, you know, that sort of thing. And that, but it, it didn't work out that way. God was moving here, and I, and, and I just got, got into the environment. We had a lot of friends here, and, and it, was, it was great, you know. And within four years, I was on staff. And since then, we've had two more kids. And Brett is now the youth pastor. Stephen II, is, who was in the womb at the time, is in South Africa. He's involved in a church plan over there. And the two youngest, Katie and, and Declan, will be ministering in the same way at opposite ends of the country this year. So so just really pleased that something generational has happened in my family. And it's been caught from being here. I had to come here. I had to bring my family here for that to happen. I, this environment fostered the, the growth in them. It fostered the love of the ministry in them. It fostered the relationship with God in them. And that's what's happened. And today we have three generations of our, us anyway here. Paddy's probably in the cry room, but that's all right. He's around somewhere. So that's, that's what happens. You can absorb something from a place. You can absorb something of God in a place and it goes into your family and it appears constantly, constantly down through the generations. And I want to read a passage this morning from Deuteronomy that talks about this. It talks about an inheritance. It doesn't use the word, but it talks about an inheritance. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we're going to read just four verses maybe just three actually, verse 20 to 23. Verse 20 says this, When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. 
Moreover, the Lord showed us great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. In verse 23, he brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. He brought us out to bring us into something. But so many people come out, they come out of their old lives and they don't come in too much. They come into a little bit maybe. Sometimes they come into nothing of what God has for them. That is an inheritance, the land which he had sworn to our fathers. But Israel didn't have a grid for that, same as we don't sometimes have a grid for that. We don't know what's there. We don't have an idea of what God has placed before us. We don't have any idea of our identity in him and what is available to us. And so we don't have a grid for inheritance. That's why so many miss out. People can get saved and then come to church and just live their Christian lives, coming to church every Sunday, every Sunday, until they die, until they die without actually tapping in to the fullness of what God has for them. In uh, Deuteronomy, the first actual first chapter, second verse, it talks about Israel actually coming out of Egypt. And it talks about the journey that they had to go on. And it says, Mount Horeb, where they received commandments from God, to Kadesh Barnea, is 11 days' journey. It says it's 11 days' journey. And then it says, in the 40th year of that journey, see, what was supposed to take 11 days took 40 years because the people of Israel did not have a grid for inheritance. They didn't have a grid for blessing. They didn't have a grid that could actually accept that God had something good in store for them. And that is because of the conditioning of their old life. They were slaves in, in Egypt. We could say, oh, you know, they should have got it, they should have got it, but these people had been slaves for 400 years. That's actually longer than Australia has been a nation. And so there was this ongoing conditioning. All these people knew was limitation and powerlessness. 400 years of limitation and powerlessness. 400 years of knowing that you're powerless over your situation and that you probably aren't ever going to experience any power over your situation. You don't own anything and you don't have a hope of ever owning anything in slavery. Probably each Israeli family had like a, like a family rock with keep your chin up written on it in Hebrew or something, something like that. But that's, they didn't own anything. So God says, what are we going to do with these people? I know, we'll get a little Hebrew boy and we'll stick him in a crib and we'll let him float down the river Nile and then he'll float over towards Pharaoh's palace and he'll be taken in by Pharaoh's daughter and we'll have this Hebrew boy will grow up in the palace and he'll know only power and limitlessness. He'll be the complete opposite to his people and he'll be able to lead them out of slavery. So God designs this series of events and the little boy Moses grows up in the palace and he knows power, he knows wealth, he knows limitlessness. He, whatever he wants, it's there because Pharaoh has power and wealth. And so he had different expectations of life. He was like it was rewired from the bottom up and he lived out 
a completely different paradigm. See, Israel came out of Egypt with that mentality, a slave mentality, and they needed someone like Moses to just dig that out of them over a generation. As well as that, if you were to look up the word inheritance in the Bible, you would see that it is most prevalent in the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, and the book of Joshua, three consecutive books, and it was all around that period. It was like in the scriptures, God was trying to saturate their minds with this concept of inheritance, that I have something for you, that you have to walk into, that you have to break through and press in and gain. So how does this apply to us as New Testament Christians? It does in the sense that that we have a born-again experience. We are essentially out of the slavery to sin and the old ways. We're out of that. We're released from that. But do we walk into the fullness of our inheritance? Is that a New Testament thing? I believe it is. We're going to read some scriptures in a minute. So people end up coming out of slavery but becoming slaves to other things. Even though they're Christians, you can become slave to routine. You can become a slave to religion. You can, all, you, all you think about is living one Sunday to the next without sinning, ticking all the moral behavior boxes, making sure the bills are paid on time, making sure that you're a solid citizen without ever experiencing the power and the blessing that God wants to put into your life. Let's read a, a passage from the book of Acts. It's a great story, just full of, of this concept of moving into something. It's, it's more or less a template, and I want to pull four things out that happen consecutively that really are a pathway for us into an inheritance that, uh, that God has for us. It, it deals with Paul the Apostle, but he wasn't that person then. That was placed down the track. That was for him to walk into. This, was, this story is the beginning of him walking into that. We all know the story of how he was riding his donkey along, along the road to Damascus and God arrests him and there's a blinding light. Paul falls off his donkey and he's, uh, he's blind and, that, and, and, and Jesus personally appears to him and, and says, I've called you. You've got, there's things I want you to do. And, and so we know that he's called, but he hasn't started to live in that yet. And so we come to this passage in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Is it? Yes, verse 1. It says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that were there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had brought up, been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So Paul is still Saul then. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that was also his name, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. And he said, you're full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. As I said, I believe this passage contains a template. Four steps to moving in towards your inheritance. They're not exhaustive steps. They're not going to be the same for everyone. They're going to be different. But it's a, it's a, a step in the right direction, a step towards the concept of, of walking into your inheritance. The first one, in a time in a prayer meeting or some gathering when the, the disciples were ministering to the Lord and fasting, God speaks. He speaks into that situation and something is brought to birth. How does this relate to an inheritance? I, I want to read a verse to you from Isaiah to show you how the voice of God, spoken, the spoken word of God, relates to, your, to an inheritance. It says, Isaiah 59 verse 21 as for me this is my covenant with them says the Lord my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring says the Lord now and forever so we are designed to hear his voice we are not people who have a distant relationship from God he is a speaking God his son is the word of God, the word of God made flesh. He, of course, he's going to be speaking the word of God. We're designed to live out of connection. We're designed to hear his voice and we're designed to take what he says and speak it into situations to change things, to create life. And see, in an atmosphere of worship, of ministering to the Lord, God speaks. That's the first thing. Here is the value of setting aside time to just be with God. It would be probably a bit presumptuous of me to say that most people, when they go to God for a quiet time daily, it's for something, to pray for something, to get something. What we're talking about here is ministry to the Lord is agendaless seeking, to come before God with no agenda. I don't want anything, Lord. I don't want you to do anything for me. I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. I just want to connect with you. I want to feel the love flow between us. And in that environment, God speaks. He says something and he births something that is really, it gets called in the Bible, the first missionary journey. But it is the, the church planting all through that area of the Middle East and Asia Minor. All, came, all began with this. See, to sit with God for half an hour, an hour, two hours, takes a lot of discipline. It takes, it, it takes a special person to, be, to just sit there and, and just commune with God. Without, sometimes nothing goes on. Sometimes you go to sleep, but God doesn't mind. No father minds their kids falling asleep in their arms. It's good. So you just, you just be with him 
And whatever he says, remember it. When I hear people say that God doesn't speak to them or that they have this mindset, they've actually formed a dogma in their minds that God doesn't speak to them because now we have the Bible, I, I just don't get that. I don't understand that. The, the Bible is great. It's the Word of God. That's not to downplay the Bible in any way. The Bible is the established Word of God. It's the foundation. But God wants to release situational revelation to us. He wants to release words for the moment to us. Even though the Bible is the Word of God, spoken by God, if someone was to come along and destroy every written Bible, every app, every, every version of the Bible that you could read, the Word of God would still exist because the Word of God is a person. If I go into a situation knowing what God is like and knowing how he thinks, then I have an advantage. But if I go into a situation knowing what he thinks now about this, I've got a greater advantage. Yes? Yeah? Yeah? Come on. Come on. Come on. I can't wait for you this morning. So even if I was to listen to the theory that God doesn't speak individually, that I should just read the Bible, before I've gotten through the first book, I find him speaking. I find him speaking to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. I even find him further on in Genesis speaking to pagan kings like Pharaoh and Abimelech. He's a speaking God. His voice is there. He's talkative. Heaven is a buzz with conversation. It's just a matter of tapping in. See, if knowing the Bible, if knowing the scriptures and knowing God were synonymous, the Pharisees would have been kings, but they weren't. They're were a bunch of legalistic handbrakes to the spirituality of the day. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't know the living word of God when, it stood in, when he stood in front of them. Let me give you biblical context in the New Testament. There are two Greek words that are translated word of God. One is logos. That is the previously spoken, established word or decree of God. The other word is rima, and that means uttered by the living voice, the freshly spoken word of God. There's a verse that we would have read over Christmas. It's a verse that speaks about uh, Mary being confronted by an angel and, uh, and, and the angel tells her that she's going to have a child by the Holy Spirit. And, and she says, and the, uh, the, the, sorry, the angel says to her, with God, nothing will be impossible when she asks how this is going to happen. That verse, with God, nothing will be impossible, is the most under-translated verse in the Bible, I reckon. What it actually says is... No freshly spoken word from God will come without the power to see it through. That's what the Rema word of God is. If God speaks to you, then that word comes with power to see it through. I've got, I've got three people down the front who are agreeing with me really well. Everybody else is looking a bit blank. No freshly spoken word of God comes without the power to see it happen. That's good, yeah. Okay, more like it. So, that's the first thing. God's voice, he speaks. If you're not hearing him, then put aside time. Take time. Get with him. He, 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 he's not restricted by that. You don't have to be sitting silent in a room with the lights off and everything. He can speak to you on the run. He does several times. 
Several times in my own life, I've experienced, I've been walking into a situation and God's just like, it's almost like I could have missed it if I wasn't concentrating. And, and that's, that's the way he speaks. There's so many ways. He, sometimes he speaks in an audible voice. People have heard an audible voice. Sometimes in the Bible, he writes on the wall. God can speak to you in many ways, but normally, normally you will feel something, feel an impression that is beyond the thought, and that's his voice. So what happens to these guys? They're there in, this, in Cyprus, and they're preaching the word of God, and they come up against some opposition. The Bible says that they run into a magician called Bar-Jesus. Now, this is not a watch-me-pull-a-rabbit-out-of-a-hat magician, you know, nothing up my sleeve. It's not that sort of a magician. It's an occult, floating, levitating, demonic blockage to the gospel. You know, when we see the words magician, we think of you know, someone who does kids' parties and that, you know, Mumford the Great or something like that. You know. But this guy is a plant from hell. He's a blockage to the gospel. And see, Barnabas and Saul are commissioned... God says, set them aside, send them out. So we hear his voice, we go out, we do something. God speaks, and then there's opposition. Why do you think that opposition was there? See, the guy says, no, he turns the, he turns the proconsul against Paul and Barnabas. He says, he, you know, he tells them, you know, don't listen to these guys. But when they go to the city... God looks at that situation. He sees that these guys have just been called to the ministry and they come up against this opposition. So what's that going to do? He, they come up against the opposition. Paul calls upon the name of God. He makes the guy blind and they overcome that opposition. See, opposition comes so that we can see our identity. What happens here is God says, okay, I'm going to send you to a city. You're going to evangelize the, the, the whole, this whole area of the world. You're going to probably get really good at it. But right at the start, I'm going to put a devil worshiper in front of you so that you know who you are. And so he highlights something to them, why opposition is so necessary. This is why when we do something for God, we strike opposition. We've got to push on through. Because we've, we've, we've been commissioned to do that. We've got the power to go through it. And so people, people, when they see opposition, they pull back. They say, oh, no, it's just too hard. You know, it might be that in church you, you start up in leadership and no one wants to come. Or that you know, things go wrong. You know, pe- people might criticize you, bag you behind your back. It does happen. That opposition is there to be pushed through so that you actually experience the power of God and the, the, the knowledge that he has put you in that place for a reason. Opposition has a place, a place in our lives. We've got to be, opposition should be our, our, what we have for breakfast. We eat it up, we gobble it up because it means that we're going to the next level. We're always moving ahead. So when it comes... Let's recognize it as a chance to experience the depth of our calling. I used to coach soccer a fair bit, and when I, when I did, I, I studied some coaches. I studied, and I, I wanted to get uh, concepts and notions of, of how to coach teams. And, I, and one of the guys that I studied was a man named Arrigo Sacchi, who was an Italian coach. And 
he had, a, he had very strange training methods. And, but he was very successful. He was unusual in that he wasn't, a previ- he wasn't previously a player. Most coaches are previously a player. This guy was a shoemaker. But he just sort of ascended into, into coaching and he did very well and he, and he sort of got to the top and was eventually the, the national team coach. And he was so good that people sought to, to spy on his methods. And one day... They were, his team was about to play in a, in a cup final. The other team sent a spy into the stadium to watch them train. And the spy came back and, and they said, what did he do? And he said, oh, it was, it was amazing. He said, he said what, why was it amazing? Because he said, they played a game. That's not so amazing. He said, yeah, they played a game for 90 minutes without a ball against no opposition. And that was, the, that was the way he coached. He, got, he wanted everybody to know where they should be. And so that's how he had them running around the field, no ball, no opposition. But one of the players, apparently, this is, this is what folklore says, said to Arrigo after, after the coaching session, that was great, coach. We'll see how we go when we've actually got a team in front of us. And he said, don't worry, it'll all work. And it did. They won, they won the cup final by, by a huge margin. But that is what opposition is for, to test out what we think we know, to test out what we've learned. Opposition comes and we come up against it, we overcome it, we say, yes, that's a notch, let's move on to the next thing. And what we get out of that is, is, is identity. We move into a place of identity and that identity is confirmed by how we cope with the opposition. You know, there's a there's a, a woman mentioned in the scripture in Mark chapter 7, a Syrophoenician woman. She comes to Jesus and she said, my little girl is, is demon possessed. Can you, can you do something with her? And, and he says, no, I, I can't. I, I, I can't because I'm here for Israel. I can't give Israel's food to dogs. This woman doesn't become offended. She, she doesn't walk back from the obstacle. She comes back to Jesus and said, yeah, but even dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. And he goes, yeah, they do. She's healed on your, on your way. See, she didn't get offended. She didn't balk at the opposition. She just powered on through, drove through it. In Psalm 105, it talks about God preparing the nation of Israel for greatness to be dominant in their region. And, and he speaks all about that. And he, and he makes a declaration over Israel. And then it says, so he stirred up their enemies against them. Why do you think that is? so they could know who they are. Yet God says, okay, Israel, I've prepared you for greatness. You're going to do this, 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 and this. Then he goes over to the Philistines and goes, nah, 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 nah. and the Philistines attack. Israel overcome, and they know that God's hand's upon them, and they're in the right place. They know, and their identity is confirmed. We have to be more impressed with the one who assigned us than we are with the difficulty. So, Paul, in this situation, we're on to number three now. Paul is an ex-murderer. But at this moment, when he faces this magician, come sorcerer, come demon-possessed occultist, he's not an ex-anything. He now has an identity that is beyond his past. He has an identity that has been given to him by God, spoken to him, he's set apart. And I don't know the situation of every person in this room. But your identity is not shaped by your past. 
Your identity is shaped by what God says about you. And, and so many people can't even get through that, the fact that God loves them. You, know, we, you hear, well, oh, I'm just, I'm, we can't build ourselves up. We don't want to make ourselves too big. I'm just a, a sinner saved by grace. I'm just, I'm just lucky to get in. Let's get one thing straight. There's nothing that any of us can do to make God love us anymore. And there's nothing that any of us can do to make him love us any less. It has nothing to do with how you are. It has everything to do with how he is. It's in his nature to love. He will not stop loving you 100%. If you're not following, he still loves you 100%. If you're not going to follow him, if you don't intend following, he still loves you 100%. If you're not close to him, he still loves you 100%. Not 90%, he loves you 100%. If you don't intend to try and get close to him, he still loves you 100%. If you don't want to change, he still loves you 100%. He loves you all the way, all the time. You need to know that. Write it on your fridge. That is part of identity. It's part of your identity. If you are walking around with this concept of God as a harsh punisher and a quick rebuker, you will have a warped walk with him. You need to establish from day one that he loves you. I can't, ha- I can't afford to have any thoughts in my head about me that God doesn't have in his head about me. Do you know that? He's a good father and he wants us to have everything that he has in store for us. So that's the first thing is God speaks, come up against opposition. We get through that opposition, we establish identity. And the fourth thing is then there is promotion. The whole thing starts again. And if you look at the, the, that chapter closely, you'll see that Paul used to be called Saul. And somewhere in this exchange with the sorcerer, he becomes Paul. He gets a new name. He, he begins to walk in his destiny, in the inheritance that God has for him. He becomes Paul. And it was always Barnabas and Saul. That's how it was written. But after this exchange, it becomes Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas doesn't mind. He's an encouraging character. He's a father in the faith. He likes to see those that he fathers move ahead of him. So Barnabas doesn't mind. Don't get offended on Barnabas's account. Okay, Paul moves up the ladder. He becomes someone who is more powerful in God. He is, what, it, what it represents is a promotion in authority that corresponds with the shift in his identity. So there's a spoken word, there's opposition, it's overcome, identity is established, and then there is promotion in authority that corresponds with that shift in identity. So we have a template. We have a template here for each one of us to move in that direction, to walk ahead, to walk towards our inheritance. Some of you will start new things this year. You'll, you'll start new jobs. You'll, you'll have promotions. You'll start new jobs in the same environment. You'll start new schools. You'll start university. It's something new that God can breathe on. Let him do that. Move forward towards your inheritance. Most people think opposition will expose their inadequacies. Do you think that? God allows opposition to come 
to show your greatness, not your inadequacies. God wants to breathe on the labor of our hands. He wants to put his mark on everything you do. And he wants to lead you into a place of inheritance whereby you absorb something from the environment that goes into your family and, is, and it moves on for generation after generation. But we've got to obey his voice. That's the starting point. When God speaks, even if we... Look, to be honest, even if you're not sure it was God, probably do it anyway. Probably do it anyway. You know, if, it, if it's going rob a bank, then it's not God. But if you think God is speaking to you, if, if, if you think he is, then he probably is. And when you give that a yes, expect the opposition, but know you've got the power to, to, to push over it. Know that he will establish you. He'll give you identity and know that he will promote you in levels of authority. You got that? Let's pray together. This morning, if you're, if you're someone who's starting something new this year, you're starting something new, you want to, you know, maybe new job, new school, just anything new. You shoot up a hand, let me know. Very, very many of you. I want to I do something different this morning. I want to pray a commissioning prayer over you to, for that very assignment that you've got before you today. God wants to breathe on that. He wants to breathe on what you're doing. And he wants to take you closer towards your inheritance. So let's pray together. Father God, I just, I just pray for each hand that was raised this morning, each person who is starting something new, each one who is taking a step in a new direction, so people who are launching out for you, Lord God. And in this moment, I just pray for a release of a commissioning anointing over each one. Father, let there be a new mantle that carries with it favor and influence from heaven. Lord, and from this day, Lord, we will see fruit as the confirmation of your hand on this, Lord God. Let there be a release of wisdom and of grace and a mantle of breakthrough, Lord God, for each assignment. Father, we commit each one who is starting something new to you. Lord God, we pray, Lord, that in days to come, Lord, it would mean, Lord, opposition, but opposition overcome. Lord God, identity established. Lord God, and a promotion in authority, we pray in Jesus' name.